Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Zoe Strachan, who is a writer and academic. Zoe teaches creative writing at the University of Glasgow, while she also has a PhD in Scottish literature. She is the award-winning author of three novels, Negative Space, Spin Cycle and Ever Fallen in Love. And while novels are her first love, she writes across various genres, including short stories, essays, plays and libretti for opera. Zoe has also worked and continues to work collaboratively on numerous arts projects, including back in 2014, she created a new anthology of LGBT writing from Scotland called Out There, the first of its kind in over a decade. And among various things that she's currently involved in, Zoe is one of the judges for the 2020 Dublin International Literary Award, which is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English. Zoe, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. It's lovely to be here at a distance with you. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, we're obviously going to be chatting about uh, your own career in terms of writing your own experience as a reader. But first of all, when I just mentioned there that you're one of the judges on the Dublin International Literary Award, and I think as readers, you always think from afar how envious that must be to read all these incredible books. But at the same time, I'm thinking that's quite a daunting task because I've no idea how many books you've had to read or continuing to read because this is prize is ongoing, isn't it? It is. Actually, we've made some decisions, which I can't talk about, but um, the shortlist will be announced relatively soon um, and then the the lucky winner will be announced it's been an amazing experience I honestly couldn't have predicted how intense it would be so it's one of the really nice things about the award is that the books are nominated by libraries all around the world so the diversity in terms of what actually comes in for the prize is colossal really books the books have to be in English but a vast number of them then obviously are in translation and there's some really quirky little finds in it's not necessarily the books you'd expect sure libraries will pick the you know books that have already won lots of prizes but lots of libraries pick debut fiction lots of libraries pick things that are very specific to the place where they are so it's quite an eye-opening reading list the intensity of reading that number of books even you know for a a book lover and somebody who's used to reading for work it's quite full-on I have to say and you know not you realise the emotional impact that books have as well because you're not necessarily reading them in any particular order and it can be just your luck if you end up with 10 in a row that are all, you know, pretty grim stuff. Um, That was around about Christmas time, I think that (laughs) happened. Um, But I have discovered so many, so many gems through it. Honestly, it's, I mean, it really has been an amazing experience and my fellow judges have been just a lovely group of people. Our discussions have been amazing it was a pleasure to go to Dublin and we had a very a very very busy weekend whittling it down to from 157 books to 25 books and then a long zoom meeting like this to whittle that down and turn to our, our shortlist and then again for the the discussion to come up with the winner so it's yeah I have renewed respect for anybody who's judged that sort of prize um, but one of the things that I've really valued about it is that we've all been coming from very different places as readers and and people but we've been able to discuss things for their merits the only criteria for the award is is high literary merit and it's been fascinating to talk that through and think about what we think you know the novel that we think has really pushed that the furthest because I say, I think as readers, it, it always seems such an enviable thing, but I, I know that it's quite intense. But also, I wonder as well, as a writer, as well as a reader, that there's a, I don't know if there's a sense of responsibility, because the, the award, I mentioned it's the, I think it's the world's most valuable award. I think that the author, the winning author, it's either £100,000 or €100,000. That's, in terms of a writer career, that's, that could be life-changing or career-changing. So it's a big responsibility in all the judges, because, you know, when you get to that shortlist, I'm guessing... 
there's a fine line between each of them because they've all got real literary merit. Yeah, I think you're, you know, you're aware of that responsibility. And it's, again, it's a nice prize because it's split with the translator if it's a, you know, work in translation. We were very ably guided by the chairman of our judges, Chris Morash, who's an academic in, in Dublin. And he was very, very firm that we couldn't take into account anything other than the novel and reminded us of that just at regular intervals. No, it doesn't matter what else the person has written, what you've read in the papers about them, whether you've never heard of them in your life before. You know, it was really the, the words and the pages in front of you. So that, that really helped us focus, I think. And, and sometimes, you know that way, sometimes in other literary awards, you sometimes hear when it gets down to the nitty gritty, because you will have you will have particular favourites as well that, you know, ultimately it's a collaborative decision and, and the, you know, the judge's decision is final, but there will be ones that you will have particular affection for and you want to fight their corner. Oh, definitely. I mean, there were some very, very passionate defences of particular novels. But I think we, you know, we agreed to, you know, we, we listened to each other and I, I think we're all, I think we're all very happy with the shortlist. It's, it's a really exciting shortlist. And I would say that it's, I've always sort of followed this prize a bit anyway, because I think really interesting books win it. But I'm going to follow it even more closely because I, I think the shortlist cracking this year. I really do. I think I looked on the website, so I think the winner is sometime in October, the winner's announced, so we'll, yes. we'll look forward to, to seeing what is announced. But I, again, I, mean, I just had a wee look through some of the, the books that you have read. It's, you know, as you say, I like the idea that it's libraries that are nominating it, but you'll have read books that otherwise you might never have come across. And again, as a reader, that's just a brilliant experience. It is, yeah. And it's lovely sometimes to see books travel. You don't necessarily know, you know, it's, it's not as easy as New Zealand libraries will all recommend a book from New Zealand. Some Sometimes there's little quirky things from, you know, that a library in Kenya will recommend a book from Ireland or, you know, whatever it is. It's, you know, it's, it can be a nice, a nice mixture of seeing how books can travel the world and reach different people. And I hope that in return, books from places that, you know, we, I think in Britain, we're not always that great at reading things in translation. And, you know, our bookshops or our, dare I say, Amazon recommends don't always, you know, direct us to these you know, these novels that maybe aren't getting all the review coverage here or the bookshop window displays here. So it's, it's a good way of finding these these different things. I know that I'm not mentioning titles just because I'm, I'm sworn to secrecy. Um, no, that's, that's absolutely, and there, there are so many. But um, the other good thing is that you mentioned it and I said as well that I think anything that allows us to say how important and how valuable libraries are for readers of the present and also for the future because particularly in certainly in our country at times when you know there's maybe in the past it's been austerity or whatever's going to happen economically sometimes the easy what seems like the easy solution is to close libraries when actually it should be the complete opposite because they should be the things that should be the beacon for people to gravitate towards oh absolutely you know i don't know what i would have done without local libraries as a child and it's you know it's probably something that will come up as i talk about specific books today but now I'm very lucky to be patron of the Imprint Book Festival, which is in East Ayrshire. I grew up in Kilmarnock and a lot of the events are in the, the Dick Institute, which is the, the largest library there in East Ayrshire. And that place was, you know, it was a place that just absolutely opened up my world as a child. It had a museum, it had a children's library, it had a reference library where I went to study for my exams. I read so many different things there, you know, starting with picture books, ending up with, you know, the books that you're a bit too young to read, the, the read ones that you borrow in your, your <laughs> mum and dad's ticket, um, all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a life-changing place, you know, you I think it's easy maybe for some people to not realise that importance and that, that life-changing aspect of libraries. And it's not as if they're not developing, you know, people use them for different things now. There's still a place that's open and free where you can go in and have access to a computer or the internet, as well as get advice and, and reading and learn and have a, have a quiet place to study. It's so disappointing that libraries seem to be often in the front line, as you say, of, of these cuts. It's, it is short-sighted. Because I always remember reading, I think at the time of the, the Great Depression in America, that actually libraries thrived and were encouraged because, again, it was it was somewhere for, for people to go, but to continue almost like in a community spirit, but to be able to still learn and, and sometimes even just a roof over people's head for somewhere to go and sit for an hour or two. So that, that's why I think they're so, and as you say, all of us have got memories of going to libraries when we were kids. 
And one of the things I think I, I wrote a wee thing about the Dick Institute a while ago and I was looking up a, a bit of its history and I was looking up the, the Public Library Act in Scotland was passed in the, uh, the 19th century. I wouldn't remember the date, but there was opposition to it and the opposition specifically was against libraries because they would enable the working classes to effectively get above themselves if the working classes had free or very cheap access to a wide range of books and were able to learn in that way they might not be content with their place and that goes through my mind when there are cuts to libraries now because I think are we really that far from that kind of attitude? Absolutely yeah well listen long live and long keep supporting everybody keeps supporting their, their local library which takes us kind of as you kind of alluded to back to uh, the start of this literary journey that I'm going to take you on back to your favourite book from childhood and I'm guessing these things are linked with your local library and the book that you chose well it was a series you said it's written by Susan Cooper but the book you've chosen is that I think it's the second in the series called The Dark is Rising. Yes um, and that one definitely borrowed first of all um, from the Children's Library and the Dick Institute um, and then the rest of the, the series borrowed in rapid succession because it absolutely it absolutely blew me away and I still have copies of all of them just now and have reread them many, many times. As a child, I'm an only child, so reading was really important to me anyway. And I liked a lot of sort of fantasy novels. I quite liked novels and stories about only children who are a bit lonely and then have a big adventure and, you know, these exciting things happen and they end up more confident or with friends or having achieved something, you know, and I, I don't want to sound as though I had a miserable childhood because I absolutely didn't, you know, I was quite, quite happy in my own. But, you know, when you're an only child, you, you probably do spend more time on your own and you know you maybe do find it harder to to make friends so I liked I mean I liked The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and the Narnia books and all of these things but when I found The the Dark is Rising it was something that was contemporary then and I hadn't read I think a children's book that had done that before so the the hero Will Stanton wakes up he's 11 years old it's his 11th birthday it's Christmas and he goes out into this magical um, world, which is our world, but then it changes and he discovers that he's got particular powers because he's part of this group called the Old Ones who are there in the, the fight against of the light against the dark and he's got access to magic and, you know, all of these things. So I suppose it's a, a kind of portal quest in a way, but it really, I think it really affected me because you knew that he was starting in the world that we are living in. I mean, okay, he was starting in England and he was living in a nice big house with all his family and it was all, you know, lovely. But uh, near the beginning of the book, he, he witnesses a scene of bullying, for example, actually racist bullying that's really, that's really horrible, you know, and, and quite hard hitting, you know, for that was at the time for a book for that that sort of age group so it sets up in a way that you might be reading a fantasy novel but the things that you can do in the world that are good apply to your your normal everyday life too and these these acts of injustice or, or bigotry that you might see in any other way I suppose I maybe didn't think all of that through at the time you know that's just a lot of benefit of hindsight you know at the time it was just like brilliant I hope Will collects all the magical signs and conquers the uh, winds out against the the dark but it's it's a fantastic series I mean there's a lot of mythic background that you'd recognize sort of Arthurian myth that that kind of thing but really good strong characterization it's never too easy for any of the characters things are complicated it sounds as though it's that simplistic there's goodies and baddies and the goodies are going to win but actually sometimes it becomes a bit murkier than that and the goodies do things that make you wonder whether the end justifies the means and the baddies do things that you think oh well maybe they, they weren't always that bad they're just they're fantastic novels they're exactly what you want for I suppose escapism now but stories that totally engross you and captivate you because I know you you know you obviously mentioned some of the things you notice maybe with the benefit of hindsight but I think I wonder sometimes if the, the best children's books, the ones that you remember, as you say, maybe it doesn't jump out at you at the time, but it's planting something in your mind of, as you say, ta tackling issues that you're maybe thinking about, but in the course of the story, you're captivated by the storyline, but it's planted a seed there that you will come back to. So a lot of books you do forget about, but those are the ones that you remember. Yeah, I think you're right. And all through that series, there, there's a sense that, you know, with Will as a character, with the, some of the characters in the other books, that they are going to become better people in this world through their, their contact with 
this other world, which, you know, I suppose sort of happened in Narnia, but I, did, I didn't have a religious upbringing. So when I read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I had no idea it was a Christian allegory. <laughs> I, you know, I just thought, what's going on? Why are they sacrificing the lion? I don't understand. Why are they tempting him with Turkish delight? This seems perfectly benign. <laughs> that witch is lovely. Um, so I think I was I was probably more suited for, you know, to have a book that um, that didn't have that that kind of underpinning. Sometimes I think, particularly with this book choice in the podcast, and, you know, maybe people are choosing books from their own childhood. So those books were written between the 60s and the 70s. But when I was just doing a wee bit of research, I think as, as late as 2007, it was on the top 100 books that teachers chose in the States to teach the children. So that, those storylines obviously transcend different generations and 30 odd years after they're, they're written, teachers still see the value of impartment to the next generation of kids. Oh, that's great to hear. I, I, I didn't know that. And it's it's so important too. you know, you don't necessarily want to single out America, but we maybe know more about that when you think about books being banned. And I'm always, you know, it's it's horrifying anywhere. But when children's books are banned, I think there's something particularly horrifying about trying to control what young people read when surely the big challenge is to have young people reading and thinking and putting their minds making their own decisions about things and fantasy novels are often the novels with magic are often the ones that get um that get hit from that point of view in terms of you know the fact that they were fantasy novels is that a, a genre that has stuck with you into adulthood as well in terms of some of your reading it has yeah it has and I wouldn't say I was the most up to date with a lot of new fantasy but I really love going back to read um, things that I, I've, I've liked before actually recently I, I was in hospital for a week um, and I really wasn't feeling great um, you know it was fine but I wasn't I wasn't feeling great but I had my kindle with me so I didn't the nurses kept saying shall we put on the tv shall we put on the tv and I said no 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 I'm just reading and I read my way through the lord of the rings again then I read my way through the Fiona of our trilogy by Guy Cavriel Kay who's a Canadian author which is one that I, I first read as a teenager and really loved and then I just worked my way through more and more of his books that I hadn't read before in various kind of nice um, fantasy worlds that are some of them partly based in medieval Europe some of them different things entirely and it was great it was just the total escapism that I needed and I don't think fantasy novels are always escapism but on this occasion they were perfect escapism for me. <laughs> You know, you touched on, again, perhaps particularly to the United States, how there are certain parts of the States where they do have, you know, campaigns to ban certain books because they, they touch on certain subjects, which is never a good thing. Harry Potter, when I mean, you're talking about kind of fantasy, magical, that always seems to jar with the religious right in the United States. But again, those books are, you know, have been for so many kids a gateway into reading. And then I think, I'm, I'm guessing that they wouldn't be very particularly fond of the Game of Thrones novels or the series again. But again, sometimes it's just a, that's a game we into people reading yeah exactly um it, yeah it really is um i've worked my way through quite a lot of game of thrones and i really enjoyed it at first this is a terrible confession but i was buying them in my kindle and at one point i, I think I, must, I managed to buy two different versions of the same book i was quite far through before i realized that i was reading <laughs> part for it. and i thought oh maybe this isn't maybe i'm not giving this my full attention and I think the, the the sort of sexual violence aspect, you know, I, I get that it's a world in which this happens, but I don't know if it needs to happen quite so often or in quite so much detail. I have to be honest, I haven't read. I started watching the series, but I, very quickly, it, it just wasn't for me. One of my daughters is uh, my three kids. She's the kind of voracious reader. Harry Potter was the books that, that started all with it. She loves the Game of Thrones books. So she devours them. I think, I don't know how many times she's read them, but I say I, I'm always perplexed is me again when you're reading of certain books books particularly that you've loved that suddenly schools or public libraries in the states have, have been forced to ban and i just think it's such a it's such a negative worrying trend i just hope it never really comes in here oh i know and one of the the most banned books um i mean i think probably worldwide but in america i think this is still the case is a children's picture book called and tango makes the Three, which is the true story of two penguins in Central Park Zoo who adopted two male penguins, sort of adopt an egg, and they take turns sitting on it and it hatches and they make a little family. 
And obviously it's a children's book about penguins, so it doesn't use the word gay. It doesn't suggest, you know, it's just, just saying, look, families can be of different kinds. But of course, this is absolutely horrifying to a lot of people who find that that sort of suggestion that families can can consist of different things than a mother or father and a child um really that goes back to see what you were saying about the darkest rising how there was you know she's tackling certain issues but at the time you're reading it just as a straight as a child in a straight story that kind of book the book you're talking about again a lot of kids would just read it as you say two penguins and they just bring up another penguin but the good thing about that is then again it's then implanting for later that people that idea that actually there's no such thing as a I suppose a nuclear family it's like families are all different so that has to be a positive thing yeah definitely you know and I think especially when we're young we don't always see into other people's families very well or very clearly and books are a thing that does that do I think show us what's normal and what's okay and you know it's I think there there's a lot of benefit in that there's a lot of use in that and I suppose whoever, whoever I don't know who wrote that book, that's, I always think, you know, that sometimes you just, sometimes it's just a wee snippet. It might be just, as you say, it's based on a true story. There's always somebody go, that would make a great story. So whoever, whoever thought that would be a great picture, but that's just genius. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think conversely, I hope it's, I think it's won various awards. Uh, I hope so. And it's a really gorgeous book. You know, it's, it's a lovely book. Someone gave me it as a present when I was, I was doing some teaching in America. And I think I'd, I'd mentioned it and someone gave me it as a present. I just thought, oh, that's, <laughs> That's just lovely, you know, you're, not, you're never too old for a picture book. Either. Exactly, exactly. In terms of the podcast, I take you on to the next book choice, and that's kind of favourite book from formative years. And the book that you've chosen is The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. So this is another one that came from the Dick Institute this time through in the big library, in the adult library. They had one or two carousels that had all the Virago classics in them, you know, all of those green spined Virago books. And they were a treasure trove too. So I think I picked The Hearing Trumpet completely at random. I didn't know who Leonora Carrington was, but I think I liked her name. It sounded like a very authorly lovely name. Um, And of course, the illustration on the cover was amazing and intriguing. And it's such a delightful book. I mean, it, it just sent me, I mean, I must have read it when I was about 14 or 15. And it set off a fascination with Leonora Carrington that's um, persisted. But a fascination with different kinds of writing and writing about different kinds of characters, I think. And when I revisited it in my early 20s, it was something that, that I, I wouldn't say my writing's anything like that, but it was some, one of these things that I felt was a real stepping stone to writing myself, particularly. So it's a story about a very elderly woman called Marion Leatherby, who's not particularly nice child and his wife, or, you know, grown-up child and his wife, um, decide to put her in her home. So she goes into this very unusual old folks' home, and has a great friend, I think Carmela, her name is, gives her this hearing trumpet because she's very deaf. And everything just changes. I mean, it's it's a completely surreal world, but it's a very cosy world. And these old women form incredible friendships. You might say a coven. Um, <laughs> And get up to all kinds of things that are going to change the world as we know it, as they know it. But it's not disturbing. You know, I think obviously surrealism, a lot of it is there to disturb and upset our expectations. But I think the hearing trumpet changed my expectations, first of all, because it's really almost all female characters. The protagonists are so old. I mean, a lot of is made of how old they are, but are still so active and able in different ways, you know, even if not always physically in the ways that they would hope, and can get up to so much mischief as well as affect so much change that it's just delightfully funny and inspiring. And I think it, yeah, I think it did unsettle my expectations in different ways. And as I say, then I read lots of other books by Leonora Carrington, who's, you know, quite amazing as a, a writer as well as as a painter, though obviously she's better known as a painter. Um, and, you know, I've, you know, followed her work. And once I was in contact with her years and years ago, I was part of a chain story where you had to nominate a writer in, I think, on another continent. 
and somebody in India that I met had nominated me and I was looking for a writer on another continent and there'd been I think Leonora Carrington's niece had written an article about her in the paper so I wrote to this journalist and said could this request please be you know passed on to Leonora Carrington would you like to write a story for this magazine the Antigone Review in Canada and I got such a lovely reply, you know, and I, I couldn't believe that she'd replied from Mexico where she was living, where I imagined she was just living this surrealist life. You know, I'd read about her having surrealist dinner parties and sewing crests all over the floor of her hallway and serving hair omelette and things like that. I mean, I think most of the time she was actually just, I think, working very hard in her art rather than living a surreal life, you know, appearing, you know, when I read about her to be very much like one of the characters in The Hearing Trumpet. Um, but she sent a lovely reply saying that she was really touched that people remembered her, that anyone still read her books and that it was so long since she'd written that she, you know, she can imagine doing it. But, you know, thank you anyway. I mean, she was still very, you know, very productive as a, as a painter, visual artist then. And it was quite amazing to think that one of these people who'd been a heroine was there and alive and you could somehow touch them at a distance of thousands and thousands of, of miles. And of course, people do read her books now. They're all reissued. They're all in print again. They fell out of print for ages. Um, but there's an anniversary. There's great biographies of her. You know, she's, I think, very inspiring as an artist. And I don't know that she would ever, you know, I don't know what she would have said. I mean, a lot of her visual artwork seems to be autobiographical in different ways and represent different things. She wasn't that old when she wrote The Hearing Trumpet. So I don't know if she imagined that she might become like one of these older women still doing everything that they, you know, that they would ever have wanted to do. But all in all, I found it, you know, it was, it's so strange actually doing this, Paul, and just thinking about these books that you, you pick it because they stick in your mind. And then when you have to put into words what they actually do mean to you, I realised that that one is a really special one for me from just the joy of reading it without really thinking about anything other than the book when I was, you know, a youngish teenager, then to coming back to it when I was starting writing, then coming back to it and having that that tiny, just tiny little bit of contact with her as, you know, as an artist. Yeah, it's quite, I think that's given me quite a lot of inspiration over the years, not in a direct way at all, but um, I remember writing something that, oh, having some writing exercises and I did, um, I did a creative writing course and it was one of these exercises, but, you know, writing in the style of a, you know, another as a sort of homage thing. Um, and I chose Leonora Carrington then, but it did, yeah, she did really sort of stick in my mind as somebody who'd inspired me. It's one of the things I'm, I'm always curious when I'm, particularly when I'm speaking to writers is, is it something even before you read that book, for example, where you, even as a child writing, or is that one of those moments where, as you say, first of all, you're reading the book and you love the book, but then it opens up this whole range of possibilities of what books can do. And over and above wanting to read everything else that she's maybe written, it makes you think of the possibilities of what you can do as a writer. And at that point, when you read that book, were you already, were you already writing yourself at that point? Yeah, um, I mean, I said already, uh, you know, I think as, as an only child, I read all the time and I, you know, I was lucky, you know, my parents taught me to read when I was, I was very young. I just, you know, read as much as I could get my hands on, but pretty much as soon as I could read, I started writing as well. You know, it was kind of draw your wee picture, then you write a wee bit, <laughs> write a wee bit of a story. So I did that a lot, you know, just a, a vast amount as a child. I loved writing stories any opportunity at school. I, I mean, I didn't get on very well at school. I wasn't, um, I didn't love school, um, but thankfully I was, I was kind of clever enough to, to get through it. Um, but any opportunities for being creative there really meant a lot to me too, the opportunities for writing or, you know, that sort of thing. So it was always on my mind, you know, I, I think when I was young, I wanted to I wanted to be an archaeologist because I'd looked at books about ancient Egypt, again, from the library um, that I couldn't really read very well, but I looked at all the pictures and was kind of fascinated by this. And I just thought one day I'll be a writer, but I didn't know anything about how you did that. You know, I'd never met a writer. I didn't know how it worked. I assumed I would have to do something else and, you know, make some money. Then I imagined that actually that when I was the, about exactly the age that I am now, which is 45, I would be sitting down in some lovely, you know, farmhouse kitchen somewhere in the countryside. And then I'd be writing my, <laughs> writing my stories, writing my novel. And of course it doesn't, you know, that, that's not the way it works out for me. You know, I, I had to make a, an active step, I think, to take it seriously when I was in my 20s to sign up for a writing course 
which was a, a master's that was run between the universities of Glasgow and Strathclyde then. And that was, it was absolutely life-changing in, you know, in a number of different ways, but we're a very small class of 14 people. Just being with these other people, all of whom wanted to make writing central to their lives, it changed all of my focus. And I think it's, I can't, I don't think I can express how important that was. You know, I did, before that I'd I did really quite bad depression, you know, clinical depression. I was really, I'd really struggled for a bit, um, which don't usually talk about, but um, having that focus of writing and having something that I could make and do were really, yeah, were really important to me. It's interesting. I spoke to a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Rog Glass, who, yeah. you know, I know, I know you know, and he did also, but it was on that course split between the two universities and what the point that he was making, which I thought was really interesting, is that, you know, from afar, people think writing is such a solitary profession. And sometimes it is because sometimes it's just you and your laptop or your notebook and, and what you want to do. But actually, what he found was that community, that sense of being with other people who, as you say, had the same dreams and aspirations and drive. And that's what he enjoyed, that there's periods where you have to be isolated, but actually it's the community that he loves in terms of fellow writers even from that early stage? Yeah, I mean, it really, it gave me that. It made it, I mean, I suppose it made it normal, um, which sounds a bit funny. But again, if you're not, you know, if you've not been in an environment where doing this sort of thing is normal or you can talk to other people who, you know, are artists of whatever kind, it's, it's a bit of a shift, you know, it's, there's different different things to think about. And you don't, also, if you don't know anything at all about then I, you know, I had no idea about literary agents or anything like that. You know, I remember, you know, quite a few, quite a few years ago now, I, I met someone through work, you know, through teaching creative writing, who was a writer, you know, quite sort of different to me. And they said, oh, there are so many writers now, all these people doing courses with which they were themselves involved, I have to say. And they said, oh, I remember, you know, when one just, you know, you wrote your first novel, then you, you gave it to an editor that you knew and they would tell you if it was any good or not. And I thought, but what if you don't know an editor? What if, <laughs> exactly. you, don't, you, know, what if you didn't really know that editors existed? What did you, um, you know, what did you do then? I mean, you know, it's one of the many things that the internet helps, you know, because I think it opens up that community very widely and makes it less class-based and less exclusive than it you know it perhaps once was or you know probably still is and being on, on that writing course for me with the, with this group of people did you know exactly that too that that kind of mutual striving to um to make something that's now the bread maker that Louise put on before she went out <laughs> beeping it's the, the lockdown life <laughs> exactly and when I did that course I, I met my partner Louise too so it was life-changing in other ways as well so yeah you uh, you're listening to the read all about it podcast with me Paul Cuddy and my guest Zoe Strachan and Zoe we're on to the third book choice in the podcast, and that's a book you'd recommend to anyone. And the book you have chosen is The Friend by Sigrid Nunes. Yes. So I will, I'll confess that this is one that I read uh, through the reading for the, the Dublin Prize. And it's one that I just fell in love with this book. It's a really quite short novel. It's quite a, it's quite a simple, simple premise um, that the the narrator who's a writer um, and who teaches writing has lost a very dear friend, another writer, and she inherits his dog, a massive Great Dane. And she lives in a tiny apartment. She doesn't allowed dogs, but she inherits this dog um, that she doesn't really want. And, you know, as the title suggests, this, you know, partly it's about the friend who's died, partly it's about the, the friendship with the dog. And it's a beautiful book. It's just a funny, beautiful, touching book. I love novels where you want to hear the character's voice in your head. And this was one for me where I loved hearing her voice in my head through the novel. And sometimes she's telling little anecdotes about her students. Sometimes she's remembering something about something she's seen in the news or another writer or something about, you know, a friend and of course she's grieving you know all the way through the novel there's this 
you know, the, just this dreadful sense of loss and grief, but then this really affirming, wonderful, beautiful sense of the connections that we can make with, well, with animals and how having a, a companion animal is, you know, is such an enriching thing sometimes if you're, you know, for people who are, well, for anybody, you know, but anyone who's lonely. And I mean, I absolutely connect with that because I was grew up with dogs, you know, or I was at a, a dog when I was younger. And you know how close you become, they're, you know, they're members of your family and they're sort of, I don't think you, you never quite realise how much love you have in you until you pour it into something else. And, you know, this is a book that really shows that, you know, through friendship and the love we have for our friends, but that incredible kind of unconditional love that we can have for animals too. It's, yeah, it's a really beautiful, funny, touching book um, that I would, I would hugely recommend. I will be buying it as presents for <laughs> lots of people. Do you do you like reading books, for example, books about with the writers, the writer as a main protagonist, or books about books in terms of novels, but given, given your own background and what you do? Do you know, I used to think that I didn't, but I think often I do. Well, it's a novel too, but I think the film's very good. I was thinking of The Wonder Boys there, Michael Chabot, which I, I think is... It's just hilarious. I, I quite like books sometimes that poke fun at writers or that, you know, stop us taking ourselves so seriously. Um, but I like, with, with The Secret Nunes book in particular, I think it was, it's that interesting glimpse of how somebody thinks and the things, I suppose, little snippets of things that have been interesting to them. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't like to only read books about writing and you know, you always have that worry, you know, what, what do you do? Would you, you know, could you run out of material if you go down your own kind of rabbit hole of yeah. <laughs> I just wonder, you know, like sometimes as, as a writer, then it's maybe something sometimes people would gravitate away from because then they're thinking, you know, you, you have your own reality, your own perceptions of what it is to be a writer. And then maybe you're reading something, you go, nah, that's not, that's not what happens. But obviously if it, the book's written well enough, then you can relate to things as well. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose if it's, you know, if it's about something else, if the if the bigger theme is is something else, maybe other than the writing, because one of the the books that I I suppose that I actually really thought about choosing in in this slot, or could easily have, have chosen in this slot, is by Nicholson Baker, A Box of Matches, which is another of my favourite books, and it's another one that's about writing in some way. So I suppose this was the, the one where I, was, I must have been looking for a, a book about writing in, in some sense. And it's uh, just a gorgeous novel where every morning the narrator gets up very, very early when it's dark and he lights a fire in the dark and he tries to do it with just one match and he ma makes his coffee in the dark. And then he sits down at his computer and he's got the contrast turned really, really low so he can't really see the words on the screen. And he's trying to write whatever it is he's trying to write and there's a lovely Paris Review interview with Nicholson Baker where he says that he you know he basically went through this process exactly as he wrote the book you know this this is what he was doing he was having this ritual and you know when the box matches is finished of course the book's finished and that's it but it isn't on the one hand it's a book about writing and I suppose the the way you can use a habit or trick yourself into getting words on the page but it's another book that gives you just that beautiful voice in your head and you're spending pages just seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. And I think that's a, it's a magical experience and it's a novel in which not much happens. And to be honest, in The Friend, not a great deal happens, although it's about the biggest things that, you know, that can happen to anybody, you know, death and the experience of the, you know, the death of somebody that you love. But these are not adventure stories, either of them, you know, they're not like the dark is rising. You're not turning the pages faster and faster you're lingering over the the sentences and just having that that wonderful sense of kind of occupying someone else's mind and looking at things in a, a different way I love that when I'm reading I think it's I think it's quite risky to do you know you know the first person's always risky as a writer and you know not a lot happening is probably risky as well but I think it's it's so so enjoyable when it's just the the sound of the words and the all these you know fabulous images and ideas that are carrying you forward so you, yeah. you really do feel you've you've glimpsed someone else's life it's funny one of the books i read last year was the the book doc's newbury port oh i haven't read it yet it was it's actually one of the most extraordinary reading experiences i've ever had and actually what i did is because it's I thought it was going to be quite difficult to tackle. So I waited till we were going on holiday and I thought, I'm just going to have days on days where I can just sit for hours and read. 
as it turned out, I could only read for short periods of time with it because it is quite, it's almost exhausting. You're in that person's head, but it's so, it's an extraordinary book and you are totally in the mind of this character. And I have to say, when I came to the end of it, and it did stay with me, it stays with me. And honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't recommend that highly enough. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's, yeah, I've got it waiting to be read, but yeah, good to know. Maybe to have a, f- a few days aside and I also reckon it's not one to read in bed because it'll fall on. Well, that, exactly. <laughs> well either that or you, it falls out the side of the bed and you wake Louise up. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> one of the things I was going to just ask you before we go on to, to the next book, Joyce, in terms of, you know, I mentioned, obviously you've written three novels. You write across a whole variety of different genres over and above all the other projects and teaching and everything you do. And are you, are you st- is it still... Again, I mentioned that you novels are your, your first love. I stole that line from your profile on Glasgow University, actually. But um, is that something that you still are either working on or want to get back to at some point? Yeah, it is. Um, because it's, you know, it's a good few years since I've had a, a novel out just now. And I have written, well, I've written another one that needs, it's one of these things that feels very personal, although it's a historical novel. You know, I, I don't think the personal aspects of it would be remotely sort of visible to a reader and it needs just a little bit of restructuring so it's it's kind of in the drawer waiting for that just now and I'm not in a rush with it because it does feel quite important to me and I want, I want to kind of get it right so it's sitting there and actually I've done um, written something else that's a bit shorter and a bit different and my agent said a look at that and I'm just giving it what yeah, what I call a little bit of a spit and polish, um, and it's going, yeah, I'm going back to my agent in a um, in a few weeks, hopefully to maybe tentatively go out into the world and and see if anyone likes it. So yeah, so it's. Uh, I mean, I think I found that maybe when you're talking about reading something like Ducks Newburyport, there when you need that span of concentration, I find that I do need that for for working in a novel. I need quite a lot of empty space. And I just don't always have that, you know, I've got a brilliant job and I'm very lucky to have it. And it's, you know, it's something that's constantly stimulating and helps me learn and, you know, all of these things and makes me part of that kind of community of, of writers that that's so valuable. But realistically working around that, I tend to work on shorter things or often I've just really enjoyed collaborating with somebody else and, and working something together, whether it's been in the opera or uh, Louise and I have done a couple of wee things together and we're you know we're going to do a wee play together I think in the the near future uh, and I've worked a lot with a composer Nicola Scrutton where we do some sort of sound art stuff together and I've really been enjoying that and just opening my mind and pushing myself into different forms a bit so I don't think the novels will go away anytime soon but they take me a bit longer and they need more empty space and Thankfully, there's plenty of novels to read. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things that, that intrigued me when I was, you know, as I say, I just kind of touched upon the fact that you do so many different things. But one of the things that did intrigue me was the, the work that you do with, is it Nicholas Scrutton? Um, yeah. how, did, how did that come about? It's, it, I think they describe it as a sound art experimental radio. Is that, is that yeah. what it is? <laughs> well, um, we're always looking for the right name for it. Um, I met Nicola years ago. Louise and I had written a play called Panic Patterns. and we wanted somebody who would be able to do not a soundtrack, but would compose something that would be a sort of soundscape for it. And Nicola did that and she did an amazing job, just the most amazing, you know, beautiful atmospheric. It was set on an island and, the, you know, there are birds and it was all quite eerie, but she did this amazing soundscape that just, you know, contributed so, so much to the play. Um, so we're in touch since then. And then, I think she was looking for somebody to do some text for a performance and a radio piece for the Radiophrenia Festival that's uh, run in Glasgow. And we we did that together and it's kept going. I have to say, when we first started working together, I thought I would write some text and give it to Nicola. And Nicola would go out there and do all the performing and recording. And I'd kind of sit there and think, oh, that's very good. Isn't Nicola good at that? Um, but she had completely different ideas, which were that we would actually uh, work on it together and that it would be more of a partnership and that I would have to perform some of it if we we're doing it or be involved in some of the sound making aspects. So 
that's yeah that's been really amazing i mean it's pushed me completely outside my comfort zone you know i'm you know i'm sort of you know i can't i can't even sing karaoke you know i yeah i can get up and read a bit from a book or something or read a short story but the idea of performing anything other than that is you know horrific to me so nicola's kind of coaxed me out of my shell with that and we've made yeah a variety of things together and we're working on a a sort of bigger project now because everything we've done has been about half an hour long and we've done quite a lot of sort of live things or live to broadcast things we've got we made a piece that was a, a sort of sonic seance that was about memory and sort of fragmentary memories and we think a lot about how people connect lots of things that I'm really interested in I think I've been interested in other kinds of writing for a long time it's great to find another way of exploring them and it must be good that kind of sense of, as you say, it's maybe it takes you out of your comfort zone. And at the time, there must be, I'm guessing, a slight sense of terror. But then once you've done it, it's almost like conquering that. And there's, there must be a real sense of achievement. And because you've pushed yourself and, and it succeeded, and then you think, well, that's, and then, and then you ultimately enjoy the experience. Yeah, definitely. And I, I was, yeah, I was petrified. The first one we did, it was a, you know, we were, we were kind of live on stage. And I was really, you know, yeah, I mean, she was great. You know, we did vocal exercises. We did, you know, st- but I was, yeah, I was terrified. And never mind, you know, having to sort of push some buttons on a computer or do things to, you know, for the sound to work. But what I found about it is the performances give, they give me a sort of amazing sense of being in the moment when we're doing it because there's always improvisation. And when you're writing, nothing's improvised. You're going over something again and again, and you want it to feel spontaneous sometimes, you know, or or you want it to feel real, or you want it to sound like it's somebody speaking. But the process is one of going over it again and again. And although I would write some text for the work with Nicola that would be, you know, honed in that way, lots of it happens in the moment, or we have patterns, you know, rehearsed to an extent, we have patterns that will come to. But the idea of being able to do something that's textual but is improvised is is really exciting and different. It just it feels like the polar opposite from writing a, a novel. Uh, in terms of the podcast, we're now on to the fourth choice. And from a book that you'd recommend to anyone, we're now on to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the book that you chose was Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Selby Jr. Okay, this must, does everyone find this the hardest one, Paul? Chris Dolan, who, who was the first guest, I know you know Chris, he attacked yeah. it with relish and, and <laughs> had to whittle down his list. I think a lot of people find it difficult for a whole variety of reasons. Either they don't want to single out a book or a lot of times people who, if they're not enjoying a book, they don't finish it. So it doesn't make that same impression that maybe a book that you love. I find it really hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that there are not books that I haven't finished or ones that I've thought were pretty terrible books, but... I think I, I picked Last Exit to Britland because I actually think it's a fantastic book. I think the writing's fantastic. I couldn't, yeah, I just don't think I could read it again. And it was one that, God, instead of creeping into the adult library and getting out books that, are, that you're a bit too young for, there was a movie of it, again, when I was a teenager, that I went to see in um, the cinema in Titchfield Street in Kilmarnock um, that was an 18 certificate obviously <laughs> um, and I went to see the movie and it was I mean I seem to remember it being quite you know quite well done but kind of you know eye-opening horrifying I thought God, I'm going to read the book if it's a book I'm going to read the book so I did read the book and the book is even more horrifying you know and it's it's incredible skill to be able to write something like that but the bleakness and the the kind of worst um, you know the worst things that can happen to people the worst sides of human nature it's and the ending is just horrific you know I, I just would not put myself through it again and I think he you know he's an amazing writer and I actually had a student who was at Glasgow who'd been taught by him and said he was a lovely guy you know just you know I, I don't know what I imagined that he was there <laughs> you know that he was some kind of Hunter Thompson figure so, but apparently you know yeah, lovely guy, brilliant teacher, obviously a, an incredibly skilled writer, but sometimes once is enough for books that I think have that that sort of power and are, you know, visceral is an overused word, but it, yeah, it really was. It's a book that, you know, it's unforgettable, but yeah, I'm not going to make myself a nice cup of tea and get a caramel <laughs> wafer and sit down and read that. Because <laughs> I've, never, I've never read the book, but I, again, just when I was looking ahead of this podcast and I think in back in the 60s there was an obscenity trial in the UK involving it well I think in, in Italy it was banned 
at one point as well. So obviously it did have that instant uh, shocking impact. One thing I was going to ask you, just when you just mentioned how obviously it's a book you couldn't be paid to read again. You mentioned earlier on that you had recently reread the, the Lord of the Rings books, amongst other books. Are you someone who does go back and, and reread books a lot? or Because obviously there, there's always books to read that you haven't read before. Or do you quite like sometimes dipping back into something that you, you've enjoyed before? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think it, it falls into different ca- um, categories. You know, I think there's the, the comfort reads where you, you know what's going to happen and you just like it and you know that that's your you know it's it's nice and cozy and during lockdown I I sometimes find it a bit difficult to read or especially at the beginning I I think I wasn't quite in a ready to you know sort of push myself into a lot of new reading so I went through a a bit of a PG Woodhouse spurt as well where I thought this is all just going to be completely predictable and you know nice and funny and you know nothing nothing bad will happen here Um, so I, I definitely have a lot of comfort reads and I suppose some of these books from childhood come back into that as well and there's other things that yeah there's quite a lot of other books that I end up rereading just because I you know I see them or sometimes because I'm teaching them and it's great when you find something that you that gives you something a little bit different and a little bit more every time and I thought about it quite a lot in the the judging for the the Dublin International Prize too, because of course you are reading books sometimes, you know, two, three times in in a shorter period of time than you usually would. So it kind of puts a bit of pressure on the book and on the reading experience. You know, if there's something that you feel isn't quite working or that it's kind of exhausted your interest on the second read, it you know, it's you do think about it differently. I think. Were you ever worried when you when you took on the role of the judge? for this prize that you would get to the end of it and go I don't want to see another book for a while yeah I definitely had a book three weekend I think there was a point where I just thought yes that's it <laughs> last one down <laughs> um I don't I don't have to just read again today or get up in the morning start reading you know I, I would have thought that was my dream but yeah there is a point where there, you, there can be too many voices in your head all at once but it's yeah it's nice some you know some books are some books are sort of like old friends that you go back to and some there's something you know we talked before sometimes you know you were saying it's the writing itself that you notice and I think you know books that are where the writing is so beautiful and the idea is so interesting you know those are things that you'll return to again and again you know in the way that I would with poetry probably you know we've been focusing on on fiction actually I think entirely today but yeah there's there are novels that definitely do that as well. In terms of your current reading, so that, that, that would take us on to the last question, which is either the last book you've read or the book you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Better Late Than Never by Chika Inigwe. Better Never Than Late. Better <laughs> Never Than Late, actually. <laughs> I know. Good title. Um, yeah, which I'm just sort of halfway through. So, yeah, it's, I'm really enjoying this. It's, again, it's quite a short book. It's, it's short stories that are linked but I said, you know, it's one of these sort of, it could be a novel because um, the same characters are coming up again and again, um, who are a couple called Prosperous and Agu, who are Nigerian immigrants in Belgium. And it's about their, I suppose, their lives in, in Belgium, the people that come to their flat, you know, for, for dinners and to meet and all of their memories of home and I suppose all the hopes they had about another place or other lives and it's really yeah it's really nicely written and it's really interesting and it's got that that great quality of characters who you know really are flawed or you know characters you you feel you're getting to know them you're in their heads and you've got that awareness of them being having different dimensions you know sometimes being able to do things that are quite you know quite horrible but not being wholly, you know, you couldn't say they were bad people or, you know, you're thinking about the effect that people's pasts have had on them. So it's, yeah, I would, I would recommend it. And I think as well, it's a kind of story of people who have migrated from Nigeria into Europe. And I think particularly in the current climate, you know, even talking about the UK and that kind of sense of politically that's been used and, and how some people and politicians are perceiving people who are going through the most extraordinary circumstances to try and get a new life and how they've been demonised and scapegoated, and which is always, which always horrifies me. 
Um, so for somebody to be able to then give a voice to these people, I think is so important. Yeah, and it's I think it's really well done in that respect because in a way, you know, there's always something that's happening in the present or we're looking at, at these people's relationship and their, their marriage very closely. So it filters in quite slowly, you know, what's happened to them in the past, why they've left Nigeria, all the awful things that have happened there, you know, which we've seen in the news for years now, but, you know, it's, it's a longer history than, than that. And that very notion that somebody can be illegal, you know, that the horror of talking about a person as illegal sound, you know, it's, it is so dehumanizing and has such a lack of empathy for what people experience in, in different places, you know, how, how lucky we are. And, you know, in Scotland, we're not a massive population. We actively need people to, you, Absolutely. Know, you know, people to be here. And it, yeah, it really... And the lives people have, you know, it's it's not a life of luxury, you know, when people have made these journeys or in the most horrific way, you know, we're, we're seeing it in the news every day just now, aren't we? You know, we, we usually do and it stops being the top news story, but it's, you know, in terms of politics, it's it's used in such despicable ways. I always tend to feel that when it becomes the top news story in the UK, it's a, it's a sense that they don't want people to focus on something else they want it's a deflection but in terms of social media i'm always quite torn there's positives and negatives to it but in recent weeks quite a few people have been retweeting i think it's a quote from tony ben basically basically it says that how a country and how politicians treat migrants or refugees or asylum seekers is an indication of how they would treat the rest of us if they could get away with it yeah. And I think that's so true that actually, as you say, up here, I like to, you know, we're not immune to some of these negative things, but I think certainly you come, most people come from a background at some point down the line that the, the families had to come here under desperate circumstances. So it dismays me when people forget that or forget where they come from and how, how they would be quite happy to treat people in despicable ways. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I read... Um... I was a bit slow with this one. I've really been enjoying Ali Smith. Well, I usually really enjoy Ali Smith's books, but I've been enjoying her quartet of books um, and I haven't read the most recent one, but I only read, so would it be spring? Where are we? It's autumn. Yes. I only read the third one uh, a few weeks ago in lockdown and part of it's set in a detention centre. And I thought that she wrote about it and again, really, you know, beautiful writing, but the the horror of that situation, how dehumanizing it is for everybody, you know, the people who are being imprisoned there, if, you know, illegally, the people who have to work there, all of that, and what happens in a pandemic or a lockdown situation to, you know, the, these, you know, these people who have just done what, you know, what a lot of us wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be brave or strong enough to do when you think about it, you know, yeah. just, People are just trying to live or live a slightly better life. It's funny you mentioned the, the Ali Smith books. I haven't read any of them, but what, I, what I'm wanting to try and do is read them all back to back. So the four seasons, start yeah. autumn and, and work my way through to the like, summer just came out there, just to as an experience of reading all four of them in a one So I'm, I'm kind of, again, I just want a wee bit of space to be able to do that and just start in autumn and then work my way through. Oh, I think that's a great idea. And yeah, it'll feel in a way. I think you'll you know you'll get that sense of how the world's changed and things that have happened very quickly through the topical stuff. But the you know the other stories about the the connections between people are are really beautiful. And I think I really admire writers who manage to get hope out of these situations. You know, and we were talking about the friend earlier. One of the things that's so lovely about that book about terrible grief is that there's this element of hope and recovery in all of these, you know, the Ali Smith books. I think all of her books entirely, actually, that I've read have that sense of hope and a little bit of faith in, in human nature that might see you through. I think maybe that's the thing about Last Exit to Brooklyn. It just leaves you with no faith in human nature whatsoever. Um, so it's quite nice to, to counteract it with you know, is something that, that does give you a bit of hope, especially at the moment. I'd always like to finish the, the podcast with that kind of sense of hope and a bit of positivity. And sadly, we have just about come to the end of the podcast. We're just so. getting started. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Another five books to talk about. 
Because it's funny, I always, and I'm sure I've said to you in, in correspondence before this, that because it's the book choices that people find the most difficult, and I always feel kind of slightly guilty because I, I genuinely have the easy part of it because all, all I'm doing is asking you the questions. And I know on any other given day, you might choose five different books because that's, you know, that's the nature of being a book lover and a book reader. It is, and you can't pick favourites, can you? You know, it's, yeah, when someone says, what's your favourite book? There's no, you know, that Desert Island Discs question, you you know, you just no. agonise over it. Um, so it's nice to, nice to have five books and nice to have what you're reading now as well. I think that's... A, yeah, and uh, we, we look forward to the middle of October when the, the Dublin International Literary Award winner is announced and we can see what you and your fellow judges have, have chosen as the, the winner of this prize. Well, I highly recommend the, the shortlist for winter reading. Let's hope we're not locked down again, but exactly. that'll certainly see you through a few of the, the cold, dark nights. Fingers crossed. Well, listen, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. If MD wants to just check out Zoe's book choices, if you go to my website, www.paulcuddyhay.com, and every guest has their own individual page, and I just list all the, the different books that we've been talking about for the different book choices, but Thanks again, Zoe. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed sitting and chatting to you about your favourite and not-so-favourite books. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.